Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast where we explore stories on how assisted reproductive technology is changing lives and changing our world. These new and awe-inspiring technologies allow people to become parents who never thought it was possible in ways that they never thought it was possible. We're here to tell the stories that go beyond the technology, real lives, and real people who are being touched and changed every day. I'm Jennifer White. I am currently trying to juggle being a parent and being the owner and director of Bright Futures Families, along with my awesome, awe-inspiring sister, Ellen Trackman. Thank you. I'm Ellen Trackman. I'm an attorney specialized in assisted reproductive technology. I uh, co-own the agency with, with Jennifer, and I also write a weekly legal column for, of the same name called I Want to Put a Baby in You for the website Above the Law, uh, focusing on assisted reproductive technology legal issues. Uh, and I'm very excited today because we're talking to my editor and the founder of AboveTheLaw.com, uh, David Latt, who has a very impressive bio. He went to Harvard for undergrad, Yale Law School, clerked for a federal appeals judge, worked at Wachtell, Lipton, Rosen, and Katz, all before founding AboveTheLaw.com. He's also written a novel called Supreme Ambitions, and he's a new father. And quickly, before we go into our interview with David, um, quick uh, call to action. If you are interested in giving feedback or calling in at some point, we do have a, a number that you provided, 303 303- where you can call in and provide feedback. Again, that's 303-997-1903. And here we go. I'm excited to be here today with David Latt, the founder of Above the Law, um, a well-known legal website, uh, also an author of Supreme Ambitions, which I recommend everyone read. Um, but he has a very interesting story when it comes to, to surrogacy and building his family, and I'm very excited to, to interview him today. So welcome, David. Thank you so much for having me, Ellen. Sure. Uh, and Jen is here as well, of course. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Just sit in the background. No <laughs> introduction. No, not necessary. <laughs> So, um, David, just to dive into your, to, should we give, should we give the ending already? Do you, do you have a child? Yes. <laughs> the, ending, the ending to the, the, the story. Okay. The drama is all taken out. There you go. Okay. Right. Too long. No, didn't but, read. Done. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but going back, uh, starting from the beginning, uh, did you, did you always want to be a dad? You know, it's interesting. I was uh, always interested in the possibility but had I wound up with someone who was very anti-child, I think I probably could have been okay with that. But I think I had always wanted to to be a parent. I really like kids, and I think I'm good with kids. Uh, but then when I married my husband, Zach, he was uh, really uh, dead set on being a parent. This was something that was an absolute priority for him. So, of course, uh, after we uh, got married, I, I think it was pretty clear that we were going to start a family. That's awesome. So, so go back. How did you guys meet? Oh, so uh, we met uh, in 2009 over uh, OkCupid, which was a dating website in the pre-app age, so pre-Tinder, uh, pre-all of that. Uh, so that was sort of the old-fashioned way. I guess not the old, old-fashioned way, but uh, probably I'm dating myself. But yeah, 2009, uh, we were both living in New York. Uh, connected over this uh, this web dating website. Uh, so I'm a lawyer and writer, and he's also a lawyer. And in his interest section, uh, along with all the other standard things, he listed jurisprudence. So I thought, wow, this is the guy wow. for me. <laughs> so, super, uh, nerd, super nerd couple. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow. So nerd together. We bonded over that. <laughs> Wow. Uh, so I just want to go back to wanting to have kids. Uh, I'm curious kind of your perspective. I know I feel like a lot of people who um, find out that they're, you know, that they're going to marry someone of the same sex kind of feel early on that the children isn't an option. I mean, I feel like our world is so quickly changing, but I'm curious if you ever before were like, no, this isn't really going to work for me or I, I'm going to have to adopt. Or if you just kind of have known for a long time that the circus is out there and that's an option. So I'm probably of the vintage that's a bit transitional in this, I think. Uh, Older gay people, gay men, pretty much thought that 
biological parenthood was not possible. Ones who are coming to, out today know, I think, pretty well that it is an option. I was sort of in that middle stage. So I think uh, earlier on in my life, I thought it wasn't really possible or likely. And uh, I think perhaps I'd resign myself a little bit to that possibility. But then in more recent years, uh, especially with high-profile people, celebrities having children through surrogacy, including gay celebrities. They're just know, like think, us. Yeah, exactly. So we can be just like them, I think. We uh, realized as we did our research that this was a possibility, and uh, then we were able to adjust our expectations accordingly. That's great. Um, okay, so you got married, and then honeymoon baby? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. We actually didn't waste much time. Uh, we got married in September of... 2015. And I think by October, November of that year, we already attended the conference in New York of this great organization, Men Having Babies, which is aimed at helping dads, uh, helping gay men become biological dads. And they have a conference, uh, which I know you've uh, participated in in the past, where yeah, they- second, uh, second great organization. Yeah. So they have wonderful panels and you get to meet uh, different agencies and clinics and uh, we pretty much started our research uh, just a few weeks after we got married. All right. And and how did it go? Did you choose an agency right away? How did kind of tell us a little about your process of starting there? Yeah. So we uh, we met with a lot of great providers at the conference, and we clicked with uh, one uh, clinic in particular uh, worldwide uh, out in Connecticut. We uh, really enjoyed meeting the founder, Vicky Ferraro, who's also a a lawyer. And uh, we had also had some friends who had worked with Worldwide. And so I think a lot of this, a lot of the selection of, of providers often happens through word of mouth. You've heard of somebody good. You've heard of uh, somebody having had a successful journey with a particular uh, clinic or agency. And so uh, I think we went to the conference in maybe November. And by December, we had uh, signed with the agency to help us find a surrogate. Right. And just to do the geeky correction. So Worldwide is an agency, not a clinic, right? Yes. I was just clarifying, like people, you meet both at the conference, you meet both surrogacy agencies and fertility clinics, and you get to go to different sessions with each of them. And I think those are the two major providers. There are all kinds of other providers as well of different other services in the whole journey, which I'm sure we'll talk about as well. But I think your fertility clinic and your surrogacy agency are the two big ones. Did you choose your clinic at that time too? We did not choose our clinic at that time. That uh, took us a little bit longer. I, I know people do things in different orders and everyone's situation is different, but uh, I think we chose our clinic uh, a couple of months later, as I recall. I think it was closer to the time that we actually uh, uh, had, a, had a surrogate so, uh, lined up. Before you got to the surrogate, you obviously had uh, another issue you had to deal with. Uh, you needed to uh, kind of make the baby here. We need an embryo, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I was going to ask, so did, and I just apologize, I just don't know if Worldwide Surrogacy offers this. Some surrogacy agencies have both egg donor agencies and surrogacy agencies. Are, did you have a separate egg donation agency that you needed to go through as well, or was it all in-house together? So <laughs> we ended up using a different clinic, although a clinic that does work with Worldwide a lot. We used uh, CT Fertility, which is also in Connecticut. They were our fertility clinic. They also did have uh, egg donors available. But in the end, we went to a, yet another provider, um, <laughs> a, a different egg donor agency. So uh, many moving parts. Match. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I, I kind of think of this in a way. Uh, if you don't go to a, a one-stop shop like what uh, you were just discussing, Jen, it's a little bit like planning a wedding. You have so many different providers, so many different contracts, so many different coordination issues. And so we certainly had that because we had uh, a, a fertility clinic, a surrogacy agency, an outside egg donation agency, of course, lawyers for multiple stages of the process, uh, a company that checks over health insurance of the surrogate, all of that, which I'm sure we'll discuss. But uh, there were a lot of moving parts. Right. So order, did you do, did you choose your egg donor first before your surrogate? So, you know, it's funny, uh, maybe these uh, sleep deprived weeks have left my mind a little bit of a blur. I, oh. I don't remember the exact sequence, <laughs> but my recollection is we knew that the wait for a surrogate would be a little bit uh, longer. And the other thing that kind of made it a little bit longer for us was 
we uh, our, our intention, which some people do, uh, was to transfer two embryos. And so sometimes you have to wait longer for a surrogate who's willing to carry twins because it's not uh, something that all uh, uh, gestational carriers are willing to do. So we we waited, and I think it took about eight or nine months, which was pretty much in line with what Worldwide had told us to expect to find a carrier. And I, as I recall, once we matched with our surrogate, that was when we actually started the uh, the process. I think it was one of these situations where I don't know. We were we wanted to kind of we figured that the uh, we figured that the surrogate was in some ways the the more challenging part, uh, uh, and so we we sort of waited until that was pretty much firmed up before moving forward on the on the embryo creation front. Nice. And I always feel like there's such a variety of how people approach this. Um, when you were choosing a gestational carrier, was it kind of just like the next one in line that was able to, was willing to do a double embryo transfer or were you pretty picky? Like that she eat organic and stay away from microwaves and <laughs> I don't know. There's people have some crazy requirements, so, but how, how were you guys? Yeah. So basically, uh, we, as, as I, the way, I believe my understanding of the way worldwide does it is they do have your, uh, requests and preferences. And of course the surrogates requests and preferences, and then taking into account those preferences, it is somewhat of a first in line type of situation, accommodating the preferences. So some people have geographic preferences, some people have preferences for being willing to do two embryo transfers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but uh, basically, uh, we Skyped with a uh, surrogate that uh, worldwide put us in touch with, uh, a woman out in Colorado Springs named Kelly. I, and I assume that you had put as your criteria being from one of the most beautiful, healthy states in the United States, <laughs> and that's what, what happened. Exactly. <laughs> I highly recommend surrogates from Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we Skyped with her, and we immediately clicked with her. It was just... It was just so great. She was just so warm and friendly, and uh, her husband was in the background uh, preparing dinner, and he just seemed so supportive and really friendly too. And it just it just seemed great. Uh, we really couldn't have we felt like we couldn't have asked for more in a first meeting. And so, pretty shortly thereafter, we uh, decided to to move forward. That's great. I love that. Um, and on your your egg donor match, um, I mean, there is kind of a, a default element with, by choosing an egg donor of kind of designer baby that you you do have to choose elements of kind of what they look like and where they went to school or if they did go to school. So I assume you required perfect SAT, Ivy League. <laughs> no, is that <laughs> okay? Well, it's sort of funny. I think initially Zach and I had a, a bit of a discussion about this because. My theory was, uh, you know, I, my theory was, look, uh, I don't think we need to be so obsessed about such things. Uh, we, you know, we like to think we have good genes and we'll give the child a wonderful upbringing, or so we hope. And so I was saying, oh, let's just, you know, not just, you know, any yeah, random person, but I'm yeah. like, yeah, exactly. No, you don't need to be too smart. Yeah. They're gonna have smart yeah. Yeah. So. But I said, I don't know that we need to to uh, to go overboard with this. But I don't know. I think we are, are uh, I don't know, our, uh, the process may have gotten the better of us because we looked at uh, a couple, we looked at the egg donors available through our clinic and also a couple of other agencies. And some of the profiles were not that detailed and there wasn't that much information about the donors. And uh, I don't know, I ca- we kind of wanted more. So then we uh, talked with this agency that a friend of mine who now has two kids had used. Uh, called a perfect match mm-hmm. out in California. Yeah. I believe you've actually interviewed. Uh, so Ellen uh, writes a great column for us on assisted reproductive technology law for above the law, and I think you actually interviewed somebody from APM for one of your columns. Uh, but anyway, uh, we talked. We talked to them, and they showed us their database, and their database was just amazing. I, I don't mean to sound like a commercial or something, but it was just <laughs> so failed compared to the other That's great. Uh, egg banks they had. I mean, so. They did have SAT scores, and they did have IQ scores, and wow. they did have multiple pictures of the donor and her relatives, and they had the donors fill out these detailed essays. And so compared to wow. other places where maybe you had one page and a lot of the fields weren't even filled out, this was just amazing. And 
And yes, you know, it is true. They have a lot of egg donors who are from fancy colleges and who are varsity athletes and who are uh, tall and beautiful and this and that. And so uh, we were kind of down the rabbit hole at that point. Uh, I mean, even the, the website, I, I guess this is sort of like the designer baby thing. The website of APM even lets you sort by different criteria. So you yeah. can say... Give me somebody who's taller than 5'4 and has an SAT score above 1,300. And lo and behold, they will show you the people who are available with that. Yeah. So I don't know. At that point, I couldn't – at that point, I don't know. Like at first I was saying, you oh, know, let's be – you know, I don't think we need to be so uh, worked up about this. But then I don't know. It's kind of like, you know, you're going window shopping. and You're like, oh, let's not go into that store. But then once you go inside, you're like, oh, my gosh, there's so much stuff here. So – was it overwhelming though? And that's what I've heard from people. It's like, it's just sometimes stuff like that becomes too overwhelming and you get paralyzed by that. Was that the case for you guys? There is certainly a lot. There's certainly a lot of, of, of choice. But on the other hand, and one thing that folks should know is you may like a donor, but she may not be available. She may be cycling with another couple. She may be, uh, you know, uh, having donated recently. Sure. Like, so once you kind of take into account who's available, who meets your criteria, and uh, and all of that, um, you know, it, it, the universe does narrow, even for somebody with a very large database like the agency we used. So it did not take us – it took us probably a couple of days, but I think we were both uh, – Zach and I were pretty much somewhat on the same page about what we were looking for. So it was not a – it did not take us super, super long once we found – uh, the agency that had uh, a lot of selection. Sure. Uh, and to be super nosy, um, did kind of racial or ethnic background come into play in your decision? Yeah, to be honest, it did a little bit in this <laughs> sense. And, so, and just to Zach, give some background, oh, you and Zach are both um, blonde hair, blue so eye. I'm, <laughs> six so foot two. I'm, a, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm Asian American, Filipino American specifically. Zach is white and Jewish. And we were looking for a donor uh, who was, you know, possibly uh, who was perhaps of a maybe of a of a multi ethnic background or a mixed background, so that if we were have this biological child, it wouldn't necessarily be uh, so obvious on first look. Oh, this is the biological child of one of us or the other of us. I think we kind of, and you know, to the extent that in some ways. For gay couples, the donor and surrogacy process is almost like replicating the process of becoming parents for straight couples. Right. We, we can't have right. the blending of our genes, our, you know, Zach and my genes. Who knows Not what yet. the future holds. Yes, right. Yeah, exactly. Right. But if we can't have that, at least we might be able to have something that was similar to that. So, for example... We were also very interested in Asian American donors. In the end, we went with a donor who was not Asian American, but we were looking for people who were perhaps, you know, uh, mixed background or darker complexioned or something like that. Because uh, that because because we were planning since we were planning to do a two embryo transfer, we were planning to have uh, half of the eggs fertilized with Zach's uh, genetic material and half with mine. And so the, uh, the if we were to say do have two children either through this double embryo transfer or two separate journeys, they would be biological half-siblings. And if we had a donor who was multi-ethnic or Asian, the child, the, the resulting children might look a little bit like each of us and or a little bit like each other. Sure. So, you know, I guess maybe that also is the aspect of designer babies, I guess. So, but, so you put in um, half Filipino, half Jewish, perfect <laughs> SAT, and there you go, you have a selection. <laughs> So, you know, in the end, we found a wonderful donor who was a, uh, a current student at Columbia, and she is, uh, we were talking about multi-ethnic backgrounds, she is very, very diverse. Um, she is Latina, uh, and her mother is white, and her father is black. And so uh, she's she's very, uh, very diverse. Excellent. So was your agreement with her, and this is, and I think you and I, we've talked a little bit pre before this, and I, I've harped on this in other places about anonymity. Was your agreement, shall we say, anonymous with her, or do you have contacts in the future planned, or did you get to meet her? Is she a known donor? So we met her uh, through a Skype session again that was set up by our agency. It was, in theory, supposed to be anonymous, and certainly the contracts identify her as donor 676 or something like that, but 
we were going to use first names for purposes of the Skype session, and she has a very unusual first name. And knowing what we knew about her from this detailed questionnaire and going on Facebook, it took us a very short period of time to find out her full information. Uh, as in terms of future contact, in her application or her profile, she said that she would be open to meeting the child later. Or being Facebook, uh, but that wasn't. No. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but uh, Facebook, I don't think it's like LinkedIn. You're not necessarily told when somebody sees sure, your right. profile. <laughs> um, but uh, so well, that was, but that was not really. Well, if she listens to this now. She knows. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay, so you you found the donor. You've met her. You've talked to her. Now now comes the big day. Um, talk about the actual retrieval and wh- what what were your results? How how awesome was this part? Yay! And sorry, just for people who are like, so retrieval being the eggs being removed from her, just to like back up for people who are in our like detailed world. And some people just think like, oh, they take an egg from her, no problem. But it's not, it's not that simple, right? There's all this probability. Okay, go ahead. Yes, no, that's right. So we, um, we, we connected with, we found our surrogate Kelly in late, uh, in the fall, late fall, early winter, I think of 2016. We found our egg donor shortly thereafter, and then in January, uh, we were thinking there were we were thinking of possibly doing the retrieval in December, but there were some various scheduling issues. And of course, you know she's a student; she was going back home for the winter break. So we actually ended up doing it in January of last year, 2017. And she's young. I mentioned she was a college student, and so she produced a very healthy number of eggs, uh, about uh, 30, uh, 30 eggs. Oh wow, that's that's high. Yeah, so no, we were very, we were very, we we're very happy about about that. Certainly. So then they did the retrieval from you two. Yes, that's right. We uh, we uh, did our part. <laughs> we went up to Connecticut and uh, did our thing, and then uh, and then they uh, fertilized the uh, eggs to make the embryos. So, how many embryos did you each end up with? Oh, it's interesting. I. Uh, this is this stage was very nerve-wracking for us because it's a little bit like a reality show or something where uh, embryos are getting voted off the island or something because <laughs> you have a number of you, – you have 30 eggs. So we thought, oh, that's great. But then it keeps getting winnowed at each different stage of the uh, fertility embryo creation process. So of the 30 eggs, only 18 of those eggs were mature. And then of those 18 eggs – uh, the, when they fertilized them, uh, only f- uh, 15 of them uh, fertilized normally and turned into embryos that ended up growing and dividing. Uh, and then uh, we then a certain number of those were re- uh, then we didn't have. Well, then we had a bunch of embryos that didn't make it to the uh, so-called blastocyst stage, which I think is a certain number of cells. And then the other thing we did was uh, genetic testing. Uh, which also uh, winnowed the field further. And so by the end of the whole process, uh, we had, uh, we had uh, something like, uh, at the end of the whole process, we had uh, five uh, embryos that had passed the genetic testing, uh, three that were genetically tied to Zach and two that were genetically tied to me, and gender-wise, because of the gender, because of the genetic uh, testing, we also knew the gender. There were three male embryos and two female embryos. So thirty sounded great, but at the end of it, we were uh, we were at five. Wow, five embryos that were uh, uh, able to uh, uh, be transferred in theory. Yeah, thirty down to five. So how did you choose which ones to transfer? And did you did um, gender selection play into that? Uh, yes, a little bit, to be honest. We wanted to do one, uh, one each in terms of who was the genetic or biological father. It, this is kind of like for the lawyers in the audience, this is sort of like an LSAT logic game or something. Like we had to be like, okay. Uh, so we had, we wanted to do one, uh, each of us, uh, being the bio dad, as they say. And we also wanted to do uh, one boy and one girl. Now, we know, of course, that when you do double embryo transfers, you don't always get twins. There's a chance, but you don't always. It does, I believe, increase the chances of at least one taking or one uh, turning into a successful live birth. But that was our plan. We were going to do uh, one uh, one male, one female, 
one from Zach, one from me. So who whose was from who? Did you know? So that got a little uh, that got a little tricky actually. So here's what happened. So I remember the day very well because it was this was the day of the uh, the embryo transfer. The transfer. Okay. Yes, it was Valentine's Day of Aww. last year, and our surrogate Kelly and her husband Matt, wonderful people that they are. Uh, agreed to spend their Valentine's Day out in Connecticut. They're from Colorado yeah. on a frigid, frigid oh, no. day, Valentine's Day. But in some ways it was kind of fitting because to the extent that Valentine's Day is about love, this was a great act of love on their sure. part and creating Aww. our creating our family mm. too. And so it was sort of like weird but fitting actually. Yeah. Um, you know, we got, got her flowers and chocolates and a card. And you know, we, so it was, so uh, I remember that, so we were, uh, we were, we arrived at the, in the area of the clinic a little bit early and I said, okay, you know what? Um, it's Valentine's day. Let's go get some flowers and chocolates for, uh, Kelly to, you know, since she's agreed to spend our, her Valentine's day with <laughs> us of all people. Uh, yeah, exactly. And to bring our child into the world. So, uh, at least we could do with flowers <laughs> and chocolates. So anyway, we're at the florist and Zach gets a call and we think, huh, and he, uh, I'm reading his body language and looking at his facial expressions and overhearing snippets. And the call doesn't sound particularly oh, no. good. And so what happened was uh, we, had, uh, we had these uh, five uh, embryos. And they are frozen in our case. And then they are removed from the freeze or thawed or what have you. And... Uh, it's unusual, but occasionally in this thawing process, you can lose an embryo. Oh. So what happened was, or so what 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 we understood was, they uh, removed from the freeze one uh, embryo, uh, uh, one female embryo from Zach's, and one male embryo from me. And they told us that the male embryo from me post thaw was not looking very good, and what did we want to do? So we kind of faced standing in this flower shop, this really awkward decision. And uh, we said, can we call you back? We went after we got the flowers, we sat in the car for a and couple of minutes. And you still had one more embryo that you could choose to thaw. Is that right? Correct? Yes. So that's what, that's what uh, you're, yes. you're thinking. Had, that's what your choice is. Kind of. Yes. So I had one embryo uh, biologically tied to me that was left, uh, a female embryo. And we were in this situation where, well, what do we want to do? To do do we want to do we want to unthaw that one do we want to unthaw one of zach's do we want to do you know so we discussed it for like a very short time because we had to make a decision it was the day of the transfer were Kelly you and thinking Matt. like oh twin girls how are we going to survive that <laughs> <laughs> that is so that's in the end what we ended up uh wow. doing we we decided we decided to essentially ask them to to thaw for transfer my remaining embryo a female embryo uh, and it, you know, it was interesting. It was a little bit of a change of our expectations because I think, uh, at that point, you know, of course the most important priority is having a happy, healthy child. But to the extent that we were thinking, Oh, what if we have one boy and one girl? Now we were thinking, okay, uh, we, we are, we're going to have a girl. Uh, so that was, uh, that was sort of our, our thinking, but then things got more complicated. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so we, we returned to the clinic uh, and we met Kelly and Matt, by the way, uh, we'd seen them before because they'd come out for a Kelly's medical check a few weeks earlier, but we saw them again and somebody came out of the waiting room with a somewhat serious look and said, uh, uh Dr. Thornton would like to, to see you. And so we thought, uh Oh, so we went back there. And Dr. Thornton said, okay, so here's what happened. The female embryo that was, uh, tied to me was also unthawed and that one post thaw was actually uh, really, really, really not fit for transfer. So the male embryo from me that they told us was not really transferable, they said, well, you know what? It's still here. That one could be transferred. It's not the world's greatest embryo, but uh, we can transfer it. And so at that point, we said, well, we don't really have much of a, a choice at this point, uh, unless we were going to uh, use one of uh, one, another one of Zach's embryos. But we decided at that point... Uh, We'll, we'll give it a shot. Uh, Dr. Thornton showed us the two embryos underneath the microscope or what have you. And he showed us the female embryo from Zach. And he said, look at this embryo. It's a beautiful embryo. The borders, the re-expansion post-thaw, this is really a textbook embryo. 
And then he showed us the male embryo, the embryo that they thought and originally weren't going to even transfer. But then when the female embryo turned out even worse, they said, okay, this is usable. They showed us this male embryo and they said, well, you know, it's, it's, it's an embryo. Um, it's kind of re-expanding much more slowly than we would like post-thaw. The borders are a little irregular, uh, but we can transfer it. So we asked the doctor, well, what are the chances of a successful uh, pregnancy or birth from these embryos? And he said, well, with a female embryo, this is a great embryo, maybe 60%. And then with a male embryo, the one that he wasn't a huge fan of, he said, well, Stranger things have happened. I remember those were his words. Stranger things have happened. So at this point, so, you're pretty, at that pretty point bummed said, that this is, you're not going to have a genetically linked child, at least it's around. But. Yeah, you know, it was, um, yeah, that was, I, I, I'll, I'll be honest, I was, I was a little bit, I was a little bit bummed. I thought, you know, it just seemed like such a long shot. And uh, to the extent that we had, the, the perfect scenario would have been, now in some ways, now that we have a child and are, have our hands full dealing <laughs> with that child, we're like, uh, thank God we didn't have twins. But the perfect yeah. scenario would have been twins, one each of us, uh, one boy, one girl, one each of us is the dad. And that would have been the ideal scenario. And what we were basically learning that morning was that's not going to happen. Uh, and, uh, and it also was a little bit anxiety provoking because to the extent that one of these embryos was not a great embryo for transfer, it also reduced the chances of even a single embryo uh, taking right. uh, or uh, you know successfully implanting and then uh, growing and, and becoming a, a, a turning into a birth. So we were a little bit bummed Aww. that day, but Kelly was so great. She was so upbeat, even though she knew the whole situation. She had her, you know, she had a green sort of four leaf clover lucky t shirt <laughs> and uh, that her that uh, that uh, her sister in law had made for her, and she was just. She was so optimistic and she said, don't worry, this is all going to be great. I just have such a good feeling. And so even though Zach and I were a little bit anxious and I was, you know, I think we were both a little bit, you know, slightly bummed maybe, Kelly was just so optimistic and so positive and, and that really helped us make it, uh, make it through that, that frigid uh, day. So, so was that just the second time you had met her in person then? Is that what you're Yes, okay. that was only the second time. And even though we had hung out with them a bit, the first time when uh, they came out for her medical screening and then again here and, you know, we had lunch with them and uh, spent some time with them. It was just amazing to me. I just remember thinking, this is just such an amazing thing that these two folks who we don't, uh, that we have not spent a huge amount of time with have agreed to do this thing for us, to do this, this mitzvah, this good deed. It just, I don't know. I was just so amazed by it. Like, you know, yes, it is. Yes, there's a contract. Yes, there's compensation. But I think most most people I talk to, most women I talk to, when they know of the range of compensation for gestational carriers, say, you know, there's a big component there of altruism or love because I wouldn't take that amount of money to be pregnant for all of this time, to be taking these hormones, to having to be taking these shots, to you know, having your marital life certainly affected because you you might not be able to. Uh, you know, have your marital relations for a while, having the morning sickness, potential complications, potential medical challenges, uh, you know, uh, possible bed rest, possible C-section. So, <laughs> yeah, giving birth, the whole, uh, you know, uh, challenge, sometimes trauma of that. Like, I, I, so I was just so, I just remember thinking that day, I was like, wow, this is really just such an amazing, amazing thing. And just thinking like, just being so grateful to Kelly and Matt, I was just like, wow, this is, I mean, it was like yeah. mind blowing. Yeah. So how did, yeah, I, I definitely, I was a bad pregnant lady. So I, I would not, no amount of money would, would make me do that again. Um, no, <laughs> now, I know people say, oh, you know, the people who, there's a self-selection involved. Like usually the people who are surrogates are people who have better pregnancies. You know, if you've had a terrible pregnancy with complications, it might be hard to become a surrogate. So I certainly understand there's a certain amount of self-selection, but there's still a huge amount of sacrifice and Really, you know, I have to sort of take my hat off to the women who uh, who go through this to help families uh, have Absolutely. families. So, okay, so now the excitement. So you wait ten days after the transfer. What 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 happened? So, oh my gosh, it was crazy. So I had a previously planned trip to the Philippines to visit relatives. So shortly after the embryo transfer, I was actually in the Philippines, which is the opposite time zone of the United States, and basically. Uh, I was getting, uh, if they were getting something at 10 a.m., I was getting at 10 p.m. If they were getting something at 2 p.m., I was getting at 2 a.m. So I would be sitting there with my phone on vibrate, and it would vibrate at 3 a.m., and I would wake up in the Philippines, and I would read the news. And they were essentially 
uh, tracking in order to determine uh, the results of the uh, transfer, they were uh, tracking the levels of a hormone called HCG in Kelly. And the first reading was positive and suggested that, uh, you know, so that she could be pregnant. Then I remember the second reading, which was apparently an increase, but not as much of an increase as they hoped. And our clinic framed it in this really, I think they're trying to manage expectations, but they framed it in this really depressing way of, this is concerning. The HCG is not increasing as much as we thought. And they made it sound like we were about to lose the pregnancy. And so we were really upset about that. And then on the third reading, the HCG levels were actually appropriately high. And they said, congratulations, it looks like Ugh. you're pregnant. And so we were And all- how, how long between the second and third? How, where, how long were you in that stage? Oh, gosh. I think it was a couple of days. And it was just these agonizing, agonizing days. I was in theory on vacation, but all I could think about was these HCG Mm -hmm. levels. And, you know, I later found out, uh, as 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 we mentioned at the outset of this of the podcast, we do have a child It all worked out. But I I later found out from Kelly that after that second reading and our clinic giving us this news, she was uh, so upset. She was even crying. She was so upset because I think also uh, she felt that somehow, even though this is all a biological process and it's not within her control, she somehow felt that she had quote unquote let us down or something because the HCG on the second reading wasn't as high as it could have been or as the clinic was expecting. Uh, so when we got the third reading and it was positive and, and strong, we were we were just relieved and, and yeah, elated. That's even. great. Okay. And then ultrasound or how did it, how did it go from there? Yes, we actually had multiple, multiple ultrasounds. Did you have a this name right away? You named your girl. You know, so. so at this point, since we we since you knew the whole since we knew the whole story about the embryos, we uh, we were pretty sure we were having girl, and we started thinking about girl names, and uh, we we didn't we had a short list uh, of a couple of names. Uh, Kelly uh, was again so positive, so enthusiastic. She sent us a gift of these adorable little pink booties, and so we were getting we were getting really excited about this. Uh, we had an ultrasound at ten weeks, and everything uh, looked good. So that was also a relief because I think one thing that uh, probably a lot of your listeners know already, but uh, early on in a pregnancy, it's very common to uh, to lose the pregnancy. Uh, sometimes. You know, you'll show get a preg- positive pregnancy result, but then a few days later, it's gone. Sometimes it's uh, uh, you know an actual miscarriage, and, the, and this is why I think they have that conventional rule of thumb, even for conventional pregnancies, of oh, maybe don't tell people until whatever the first trimester or something, because you often uh, it's not really. I think once you pass the first trimester, the odds of a successful pregnancy and birth go up a lot, but in that first trimester, it can be very uh, very much up to chance. So the ten week ultrasound came in. Everything was good, and it was it not twins, just a singleton baby. Uh, yes, that is right. That is true. Uh, we had, and we kind of knew that from the HCG levels a little bit because it's no guarantee. You really have to wait for the ultrasound, but the, it, twins yield a higher HCG level usually. Uh, so we kind of suspected it was a singleton, and then when we got the ten week ultrasound, it was confirmed that it was uh, it was a single uh, pregnancy, and funny you know the the 10 week ultrasound is not very illuminating it looked like <laughs> an alien like it just has this big head and these just big like eyes but small body and yeah <laughs> it looked like it looked like it looked like an alien life form but that was yeah that was the uh that was the, the right. and were you telling anyone at this point about going through surrogacy we had told uh, we had told we had told people that we were going through surrogacy. Uh, in fact, I even wrote a piece for Esquire magazine about it from the early stages, where I more was focused on interviewing couples who had already done it. But then I mentioned in the article, oh, by the way, my husband and I are doing this. But that was very early on in the uh, stages. And at the time that the article came out in 2016, uh, we hadn't even um, connected with our surrogate yet. So that was early. But we were not we were not super secretive about the fact that we were going through it. But once we got to this more advanced stage, we did comply with that traditional rule of thumb of not really telling many people before the first trimester has passed. And so we told our parents, we told close family, but we didn't really tell that many people. And so we were going to wait a little bit before sharing that news more broadly. Because, you know, you could, it's very, like I said, it's very easy to, to lose a pregnancy sure. uh, that early on. So the next step, the next big ultrasound, how did that go? The, so 
that was the uh, 20-week ultrasound. And, um, and we decided uh, to go out uh, to Colorado for that. Uh, it would be a good chance to, of course, catch up with Kelly and Matt and also check out the area where our child would be born, hopefully. Uh, and we also wanted to be present for the 20-week ultrasound because that was certainly a more revealing ultrasound. And uh, it's where you uh, get to make sure that a lot of parts are in working order, essentially, and uh, you learn the gender and, and all these they, other They still things. look like aliens, though, so, at that stage. So, yeah. Yes, that is true. And they have this new 3D ultrasound technology, and I think it's kind of cool. Zach is a very discomforted by it. He thinks they look like, like I don't know, like Gollum. I, I agree with Zach. I was thinking it really creeped me out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit weird, but we did at the 20-week get the 3D. And so we went uh, to the clinic with Kelly, and we told the ultrasound technician the situation that, you know, it's a singleton, it's a, it's a girl, and she's going through the ultrasound. She's saying, oh, you know, there's her arm and there's her hand. And a lot of this was really fuzzy to us. It was sort of like, we'll take your word for it because <laughs> some of these things didn't really look like the identified body part, but we're like, okay, fine. Uh, and then at a certain point in the ultrasound, she says, uh-oh, no. which is pretty much the last thing you want to hear during an ultrasound of your firstborn child. You're like, uh-oh. So we, we say, uh-oh. So she says, well, uh, your child might be uh, a little uh, resentful. Uh, this is not a girl. This is a boy. And so we were floored. We, we could not believe it. We said, uh, uh, are you sure? And she showed us on the ultrasound what purported to be the boy parts. Um, now, again, it didn't really yeah. look like much to us, but... Uh, we're like, uh, okay, we'll take your word for it. Uh, and then after the ultrasound, we met with Kelly's OBGYN. And at that point we thought, you know, let's, let's get a second opinion. So we asked Dr. Uh, we asked Dr. Biza, would you, would you mind, I, you know, I, we know the ah. ultrasound technician is the real expert, but would you mind taking a look at that wow. and just kind of confirming that for us? So he left the examining room and probably much came back 30 seconds later saying, that's a boy. Uh. So, so that was the, the little big embryo shock. that could strange things have happened. Exactly. Exactly. It was just a shock that this embryo that, remember, they weren't even originally going to bother transferring. But then when the other embryo turned out even worse, they said, fine, we'll toss it in there. Uh, and this basically turned out to, uh, to be a viable pregnancy. We were just, we were really, uh, we were really blown away. And I think it shows that despite all the talk about designer babies and how much you can control in this process. There is still so much about this process that we can't control and that we don't fully understand. Even expert clinics and embryologists and fertility doctors, there is there is still so much that uh, that we don't. Uh, I I love that story, and I feel like it's so uh, like su such a great story to tell your son one day. Like you were just like this weakling embryo, yeah, exactly. but you <laughs> you're the one who persevered. Exactly, exactly, and uh, exactly. And now that he he cries his head off, we kind of know. Yep, yep, you uh, you made it all right. <laughs> oh. So how much contact did you have with Kelly throughout the entire pregnancy? How did that look like for you guys? Was it, you know, daily emails, daily texts? Did you call? How, you know, how, what, what was your journey like in that regard? So it was wonderful and amazing. Kelly and Matt were just so great. And Kelly always kept us posted. She would text pretty much every method of communication we've used. Uh, texting was pretty frequent. She would sometimes text us pictures, uh, text us how she was doing, how she was feeling, uh, social media, Facebook updates, uh, we uh, phone calls. We would have weekly Skype sessions and uh, uh, emails occasionally. Pretty much every method, you know, not carrier pigeon, but pretty much every method of communication known to man we employed. And I should also add that her husband, Matt, was super supportive. And so for people who are going through this process, I would urge you, try to also gauge what kind of support network the surrogate has, because there were some tough times during this process for Kelly. The first trimester was rough for her. She had quite a bit of sickness. The last trimester was tough for her. She was very fatigued. And Matt was just such a trooper and always there to support her. And I think it can make a big difference and, and really improve your journey if you have a surrogate who has a supportive spouse, partner, family, uh, et cetera. But we kept in very good contact with her. And then going back to one of your earlier questions, I think you asked it, Ellen, about 
how much we were monitoring her health or something. One thing that jumped out at us in her application was she was a very healthy person. She liked to exercise. She didn't drink. She ate a healthy diet. And so at that point, we decided we weren't going to uh, be micromanagerial about it. We have heard of stories about, and I know every, I don't judge or anything, different intended parents are different. Some intended parents want a much greater degree of oversight. For us, we said, you know what? We're already trusting you to have our child. We're not going to ask you to text us a picture of every meal you eat. Like it was just, you know, there's, and you're half, you're like two thirds across the country. So it was a situation where we had to have just a certain base level of, of trust. And so uh, we, we, we were not micromanagerial about that. We were very supportive. If she had a craving for something, we would find the best purveyor oh, on the internet what were the cravings oh um uh, at one point she she was very healthy she really liked fruit so at one point she was really into apples and a specific type of apple i'm forgetting the particular but you, you found the best or whatever you would call it but we, <laughs> we, we sought that out uh from some kind of virtual orchard and then uh, another time she was really, really into pineapples so we oh. shipped her a bunch of pineapples <laughs> Uh, one thing that was interesting was normally she enjoys eating chicken, but during the pregnancy, she had this aversion to chicken, which often happens in pregnancy. Just foods that you normally like just disgust you. So she was eating a lot of steak. So we found uh, one of these companies that sends you these frozen filet mignons and we shipped that to her. So we were really, you know, but again, it was really the least we could do because she was doing this amazing thing of bringing our child into the world. So of course we want to make sure that she felt comfortable and happy and had everything that, uh, you know, she needed or wanted. So, um, so that was really, uh, that was very important to us that the communication and just always, uh, staying in touch with each other. I have to say, and I should also mention, no, I was gonna say, I think that you just gave, uh, some intended parents out there a crazy idea. I'd never heard of like the idea of making them take pictures of the meals. And now I'm afraid that I'm going to start hearing about that. (laughs) (laughs) You have given me a lot of fear all of a sudden. Hopefully he inspired, hopefully he inspired intended parents the other way to be sending filet mignon and like the best apples to their gestational carriers. To trust. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. No, it's true. But, you know, there is a certain amount of uh, – I'll I'll tell a story. Uh, You guys uh, – I'll I'll tell a uh, uh, – I'll I'll tell a one funny story that kind of, I think, indicates uh, how this works. So, as I mentioned, we were connected with Kelly on uh, Facebook. And very, very early on in the pregnancy, it might have been – barely after the embryo transfer, she posted that uh, her husband, Matt, is an instructor in firearms at the Air Force Academy. And so they're, you know, they're very, it's very, they're really into guns uh, and, or he is. And so very early on in the pregnancy, it might've been barely after the embryo transfer, shortly after they got back to Colorado, she posted on Facebook that uh, she and Matt went to a firing range. So all of a sudden we said, uh-oh, is that okay for a pregnant woman? So then we Googled it. And of course, pretty much anything you Google <laughs> relating to pregnancy or surrogacy, yeah. there's a million message boards. And so there are these debates on these message boards about, oh, it's okay. No, it's not. You should go to an indoor. Uh, if you're going to go, go to an outdoor range. She did go to an outdoor range. If you're going to go, oh, go to an outdoor no. range. No, don't go. Oh, you have to wear something to protect you from the there's, – there's a fear of the lead exposure. Oh, there's a fear of the damage to the baby's hearing. Oh, no, no. It's okay if you go early in a pregnancy because it's too early. No, wow. no, no. Never go. So we were totally overwhelmed and freaked out. And we didn't really know what to do because we didn't want to be micromanaging Kelly's life. But on the other hand, we didn't want our – our baby to have any kind of issue. So we called our doctor, Dr. Thornton, and we said, uh, we know that the embryo transfer just happened. It's really early in the pregnancy. Uh, Kelly went to a uh, firing range, an outdoor firing range. Is there a problem with that? And he goes, no, not unless she's the person being shot at. Uh, So it was one of these situations where we said, okay, calm down. Like we breathed a big sigh of relief. And then we later found out, we told, we told Kelly later on about this whole thing. She said, yeah, that was the one time she went super early in the pregnancy. Like it was not like she was going there in, you know, month nine or whatever and hanging out at the firing range. Um, it was something that she did. She might not even have, it was so early after the embryo transfer, she might not even have known she was pregnant at the time, but it was just one of these funny things where it just shows how you can get so worked up over these things. And Really, most of the time, it's 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 really not a problem. But I can understand how intended parents get really worked up. And I think one thing about surrogacy is because you do not have the child right there with you, it's not like you can touch 
a hand to your belly and feel the child, you may have even more anxiety because you feel like you have less control. Uh, so I think I would just urge parents That's what Kim to- Kardashian says, so. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm in good company, I guess. <laughs> right. So, you know, so you found out about that on Facebook. Yes. Um, how, what were your feelings surrounding social media, both for yourself and for her? Because this is a big hot button issue for people as yes. to how they feel about social media. What were, what were your feelings on that and experiences? So one thing I would recommend to intended parents and surrogates is in this age of social media in 2018, it's good to figure out uh, what your views are on this and make sure you're both on the same page. So this was an issue in our original Skype session with Kelly before we moved forward uh, that she actually raised. And we were glad she raised it because we hadn't thought about it, actually. And she said, look, uh, I'm pretty active on Facebook and Instagram. And uh, would it be okay if I were to mention at various points I'm pregnant? Because one thing about uh, Kelly and Matt was uh, they had told some people that they weren't planning on having more biological children of their own. And so if people bumped into Kelly at the shopping mall or the supermarket and saw her with this big pregnant belly, they would kind of be scratching their heads. And so Kelly wanted our permission to say, look, would it be okay for me to share this with people, what I'm doing, uh, how I'm serving and working, you know, being a surrogate, uh, uh, and, uh, and that, you know, it's not my biological, it's not my child that I'm carrying, and, you know, maybe mention it on, on Facebook. And we said, yeah, we said that would be totally fine. We understand social media is an important part of people's lives. Uh, we're both active on social media ourselves, Zach and I. And so the only request that we had was, since we were, again, paranoid about uh, not counting our chickens before they're hatched, uh, we did tell her, uh, just don't tag us, uh, I guess, basically prior to the birth, because we weren't really going to announce uh, this either until late in the pregnancy when we had a baby shower for some friends and family or after the child was born for a broader audience. But uh, you know how social media is, depending on your wall settings, your privacy settings, et cetera, Kelly could tag us saying, oh, Matt and I just got back from Connecticut where uh, we did the embryo transfer for David and Zach. And then suddenly, you know, I have I have almost 5,000 Facebook friends. Suddenly these 5,000 people know. And then what if the pregnancy doesn't work out or something? And so that was our only request. We said, uh, social media is totally fine. Just just don't tag us until until the end. Right. That makes sense. So, Okay. That means, you know, we've gotten to the end, right? That, this happened. <laughs> yes. Yes, it happened. Was How's there a birthday, yes. I assume? How was, yes. What, tell us about that experience. How did you find out? Were you there in time? I mean, just that, that's so the big this, exciting part. This also, I feel like our journey, in the end, it worked out beautifully and everything went fine and our baby is happy and healthy uh, and we got it on the first embryo transfer even and we were using a first-time surrogate and a first-time egg donor so we are we're very very uh, delighted with how it all worked out and we're very grateful to all of the people who helped us along the way uh, including Ellen who was our uh, local counsel in Colorado mm-hmm. and uh, got us You're the uh, birth certificate uh, that that said it was a very there were definitely a lot of complications in the process. One of them was this whole total surprise about the embryo situation and the gender. The other thing was, and this was very scary uh, for quite some time, uh, we had we were scheduled to go out to Colorado uh, in, uh, I think I was going to go out there around week 37 or so, uh, th- 37, 38 of the pregnancy. And doc- uh, Kelly's doctor his recommendation or his plan for various reasons was to induce uh, on a week 39. So we were fine with this and we were going to go out or I was going to go out a little bit beforehand, uh, like a week or two beforehand to be there. And then Zach was going to come out a few days before the intended uh, date of uh, induction. So here's what happened. Around 36 weeks and five days or so, uh, it was a Tuesday, October 10, uh, Zach uh, got a call from Matt saying uh, Kelly is uh, having these terrible headaches and she vomited in the shower this morning. We rushed her to the hospital. It turns out she has preeclampsia, which is high blood pressure. And this can be dangerous uh, for the mother. It can also have issues for the child. And so Matt said uh, uh, the the recommendation was uh, to induce. So of course, we of course wanted what was best for Kelly and the child and so, you know, the baby. So we said, yeah, great. Uh, uh, we were worried at that point. We were just we just wanted to make sure everything turned out okay. But we said, of course, do what the doctors think is best. So, pretty much that point, we found out in the late morning uh, the child was going to be born that day. Pretty much, 
house mm. and were you on a plane? Uh, it was, I think we found out around 10.30 or 11. I think we were on a plane by around 2. This did not allow for a very orderly process. I rushed home. I threw random baby clothes that we had gotten as baby shower gifts into a <laughs> all, suitcase. All pink. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No. <laughs> we had had some blue things by then, fortunately. But not that I, I you know, gender neutral parenting is fine. We have a lot of stuff that goes either way. Um, we had a car seat because you need the car seat to take the baby home from the hospital. It was still in the box. I tried to measure the box to see if I could use it as checked luggage. Unfortunately, it was too big. So I just took the, the car seat out in its plastic bag and took it that way to the airport. Yeah. Like we just had no time to do anything. It was actually very convenient. They just wrapped some duct tape around the plastic bag and threw it on the conveyor belt. But uh, so we just rushed out to Colorado. It was very stressful because there was this whole issue about, well, uh, I was able to get on the flight, but then Zach was, was going to have to fly standby from Chicago. We were connecting through Chicago, and it wasn't clear that he was going to get on the Chicago to, Colorado, to Denver leg. And it was really, really crazy. So we signed up for a – we never do this, but we signed up for internet on the plane. And we're getting these uh, texts from Matt because that I think is also – that works if you sign up for the internet. And he was basically saying, oh, she's dilated to X centimeters. She's dilated to Y centimeters. And so we're following this in real time on this plane like, ah. Then we get to O'Hare. And we go to gate C21 for our flight to Denver. And suddenly we get this text from Matt saying, what's the child's last name? So we said, uh, lat, lat Shemtob, like hyphenated, lat dash Shemtob. And then the next thing is a reply with a video of our son being born. So we were just like getting teary at this gate C21. And we're just like, oh my gosh, that's our son. And... I think there, were this, there was this group of women traveling together and they were overhearing and exchanging puzzled looks because they were like, what, what are these people talking about? I think they, they were just kind of puzzled by this, by us scrutinizing this, this birth video. <laughs> and we were on, at this point, we were on a text chain with um, Kelly, Matt, and uh, our parents because we wanted to keep everyone posted, especially given the preeclampsia. And so my mother just texted back, oh my God, like with five <laughs> exclamation points as soon as the video was sent like we were all just floored i mean gate c21 at o'hare will never be the same um so the upshot is you know we did miss being there for the birth but we were just glad that everything worked out okay and we did make it in time we made, we got it to, to denver uh late in the evening on the 10th so we were still there on his uh birthday and he was in the nicu uh he was born prematurely so it was the hospital's policy even oh, though he was only really, born yeah. he was 36 and five days so two two days prior to 37 which they consider term but he was still in the nicu and he was very uh, low birth weight he was five pounds six ounces and so they did take him to the nicu to take care of him and sort of essentially try to put more weight on him and he also had uh, a bit of jaundice and that was another condition that they were monitoring while he was in the nicu wow so how long did he stay in the nicu then yeah, so he was in the NICU for about six days. Uh, they took great care of him. And in some ways, it was very good for us, too, because what happens is they invite the parents at this hospital, uh, St. Francis in Colorado Springs, uh, to participate in the care of the child. So you go there and you can change the diapers and feed the child. And the NICU nurses will watch you doing it and give you <laughs> pointers. Too. No, this was great. That's like, kind it, of a perfect you know? transition. Yeah, because we, you know, we, we had taken a we had taken a class in baby care here in New York with a pediatric nurse uh, uh, who does this on the side from her job at NYU, and we had read books and things like that. But it's really great to actually, you know, changing a diaper on a doll is one thing; changing it on a live squirming baby is another. Uh, Just so wait until he's a toddler, and you learn the throw the leg. Or you learn the throw the leg over the squirming body to hold it down while you train. You, you change the diaper <laughs> trick. Just wait. <laughs> yeah, we haven't yeah. gone to that yet, but uh, you know. So he spent about six days in the NICU, and the other challenging thing was uh, Kelly because of. Uh, she had these terrible headaches even after the delivery. And I think it might've been something related to the epidural, but she had these splitting headaches and her, her blood pressure continued to be high. So she was in the hospital for several days afterwards as well. Uh, you know, in the end, everything worked out great. And Kelly has now made a full recovery and Harlan is in excellent health. But for that, you know, for that first week or two, we were very worried about both of them. Uh, you know, he was in the NICU and she was in the hospital too. And you know, normally, I guess, you after birth, you get released after a certain number of, you know, whatever, 48, 72 hours, I can't recall. But she was in there for about, she was in there for almost as long as he was. She was in the hospital for about five days. Um, and then even after being discharged, she was admitted again to, through the ER because she was having terrible headaches again and, and shortness of breath. So we were very, very worried for, for quite some time. But um, after about two weeks, uh, 
the situation improved with her. And, and now, of course, we still keep in touch with her. Uh, you know, now she's doing great. But it was it was very nerve wracking for us, for Matt, for, uh, you know, for her daughter, Caitlin. Uh, uh, it was it was a it was a stressful time for all of us. We were looking after this newborn in the NICU, and we we're also worried about about Kelly's health. Yeah, and how is your relationship now with her? Oh, it's Does great. We still keep, keep in, touch? in touch with her. Absolutely, we uh, send her uh, we send her photos, video. She had sent us as a gift a whole collection of onesies for the different months, like one month, two month, three month. The other day, uh, January 10 was his three months. So we put him in the onesie and sent her the picture. Like we, um, we really uh, keep in, in touch. And I think through this process, uh, I think we've made, I, you know, I think we've made friends for life. We just really totally clicked with them. And when we were out in Colorado for the 20 week ultrasound and again out there for the birth, we hung out with Kelly and Matt. We, you know, we visited them in their home. We went out to lots of meals together. We got to know their daughter, Caitlin. Like we really, this process really has brought us uh, close to wonderful folks that we never would have had any occasion to meet but for this process. They live in Colorado. They're not involved in anything that we would have a professional connection with. You know, it's, But it's just it, – it's that's, I think, just another benefit of this this process. We've just met some amazing people that I suspect we're going to be in touch with for, yeah, you know, for, the, for the rest of our <laughs> lives. <laughs> that's fantastic. So – so are you planning on doing this again? Uh, yes, we are. That is our current plan. Uh, we have two embryos in a freezer in Connecticut. Uh, they're both male. They're both uh, tied to Zach. So we will probably try to use one of those embryos before we would have to cycle again, since we have two perfectly good embryos. And having been through that whole winnowing process, we wouldn't want to go through it again if we don't have to. Uh, but we will... Uh, uh, we will probably have to find a, a different surrogate though, because even though Kelly was amazing and Kelly actually said to us, Oh, I would love to work with you guys again, but it's just given the preeclampsia and everything, I don't know that it would be possible. So, uh, we will, uh, we just hope that our next surrogate is as amazing as Kelly was. Right. And you know, there's all that like theory on spacing, whether they should be close or far apart. And so, are, so are you pregnant again right now? <laughs> no, my gosh, we're still trying to keep our sanity. Uh, not he's not sleeping through the night, so this is kind of why we're relieved we don't have twins. But uh, we kind of think that uh, you know three or four years might be optimal. But one thing that's tricky about this whole process, now granted, it's also true for straight couples as well. You can't control your exact time. You could be trying to get pregnant, whether uh, naturally or through IVF or through surrogacy, for months or years or what have you. So our current plan is probably to maybe start our next journey in, and this would be starting even the search for a surrogate, starting our next journey in maybe early 2019, which means that maybe, who knows, if everything went well, even if, if everything went perfectly, we might not even have um, a sibling for Harlan until sometime in 2020, because 2019, you spend some time searching for a surrogate, you're, you know, you, you have the, all the transfers. You know, the process will in some ways be perhaps faster this time because we have the embryos already, uh, but, you know, what if those embryos don't take and then we have to cycle again? And so we'll probably start the process in 2019. But when it will end, uh, you know, the length of a journey is, is quite unpredictable. Yeah. Well, I want to say a big congratulations to your your family. And thank you for willing to do this interview, even though you're still in that um, sleep is a, <laughs> is non-existent frequently uh, stage of babyhood. No, and, and thank you, Ellen, for, again, being our counsel in Colorado and helping us get the uh, pre-birth order. Uh, this is something that some intended parents might be interested in knowing about, that in Colorado, at least, and some other states, you can have both intended parents on the birth certificate if you go through the proper procedures in advance of the, of the birth. So uh, we didn't have to do any kind of adoption or anything uh, from the get-go. Zach and I were... Uh, on the uh, birth certificate, uh, thanks to our uh, counsel, Ellen. So uh, right. and very, it's, uh, it's a yeah. And very simple. We never had to go to court. We just mailed it in and got the order back and no issue with father, two parents on a, two fathers on a birth certificate or parent, parent in this case. Um, but yeah, no, Colorado is a very friendly state in that sense. Yep, exactly. Another good reason to have, uh, <laughs> have uh, your birth uh, in Colorado. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. So thank you, David. 
so much. We, you have no idea how much we have enjoyed and appreciated you sharing your story with us. It, it's been incredible. Thanks for having me. And thanks for all the great work you do in terms of uh, helping uh, families uh, connect with surrogates and representing them through the process. Uh, it really is. Uh, it really is God's work. Thank you. Oh, thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Take care. Hey, thank you. Bye. I think the lesson or tip of the day from David's interview is really one of hope. I love his story about the embryos and how the unexpected embryo, which really no one thought there there was a chance, is the one that is now now their son today. So I just love that kind of story of, of hope where you don't expect it always. The little engine that could always, right? <laughs> the little embryo that could. That's right. And so if you like what you've heard, if you, you want to hear more of us, please do not forget, this is a shameless plug, please go to iTunes and review us so that we go up higher in their little iTunes ranking and so more people can find us. Uh, also, if you want to continue the conversation with us in other ways, we please don't forget to go to Patreon and join our community at patreon.com. For a small subscription fee, you can join the, the, you'll be added to our Slack channel so that you can continue the conversation with other people out there who uh, are also interested in exploring things related to infertility. And you can even suggest topics to us over there. Um, and we also will have bonus episodes available to our subscribers that are only available to our subscribers via Patreon. Thanks for joining us. And again, quick shout out to our um, our sound engineer, Chris Wright at Work at Bird Studios in Denver. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.